Welcome, friends, to The Hero Beside Me, the podcast that seeks to explore the professional and private lives of working dogs of all kinds. For thousands of years, humans and canines have shared a special bond and an essential partnership, which continues to grow in importance in our society today. Dogs are helping humans in a myriad of ways, performing essential tasks that only they can perform. The more we learn about them, the more endless their potential seems to be. It is my goal to document the way these amazing animals are making an indelible mark on our world with their astonishing abilities, incredible drive, insatiable zest for life, and unconditional love, which they generously bestow upon their humans. Join me as I explore the wonder of these canine heroes beside us. Listeners, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I have a special episode for you today. I will be sharing my conversation with Denise Sanders of Search Dog Foundation. She is the communications director there, and we're going to be talking about disaster search. Denise, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So give us a little bit of a background on yourself, who you are, and your relationship with dogs. Well, I will say my love of dogs started very early. And so to be able to be doing something now that involves them, and of course, in a way that is giving back and helping others is just, it's a dream come true. It's such a cliche, but it's so true. Um, But I actually found Search Dog Foundation through a, a job listing and never thought I would get it. You know, it sounded like it was right up my alley. I was actually previously a 911 dispatcher. So I had worked with first responders um, in the past in a a, a different way, very different way. Um, And so it just seemed like a good fit and a good way to continue to to give back and be in the public service world. I honestly had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, I actually was hired as our program uh, director originally. And so I was running our program for about six, almost seven years, Um, everything from recruitment to training to our lifetime care program for dogs that don't quite complete our program. They get adopted out to loving homes. Um, And so it really gave me a wonderful, solid foundation. And then as as time went on and things evolved, now I get to tell those stories um, and share them with everyone, your listeners and, and everyone around the world and what these incredible dogs and their first responder handlers do. It's It's been a journey. It's been 12 years in total, and I'm still not tired of it. It never gets old. I don't think it ever will. <laughs> that is the dream. Yes. Yes, it is. I'm not giving it up anytime soon. <laughs> well, tell us what Search Dog Foundation is. Search Dog Foundation, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we recruit and rescue dogs from all over the country, from shelters, rescues, families, individuals, um, anyone who has a dog that we're looking for um, will understand when I say that they are certainly a lot to handle. Um, They have incredible drive, uh, hunt drive, toy drive, people call it many different things, but they have incredible drive focus and the energy is through the roof and just nonstop. And, 
every time I, I talk to someone and say that, I often hear, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I play fetch with my dog in the backyard for, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes at a time. And, and my dog is nonstop. And I always try to explain that's very true. And I have two of my own that do the same thing, but there is a distinct difference with these dogs that are meant to be search dogs because they absolutely will not quit until you force them to go back inside the house. They will not leave that ball alone or that toy alone. Um, they just innately have to possess a toy and they almost obsessively want to engage and want to continue working. And so those are the dogs that we're really looking for. Typically, they do not make fantastic pets in any way, shape or form because it's a lot for the everyday person to handle. Um, but they absolutely thrive when given a direction to kind of channel all of that into and, you know, a working a job is wonderful for them as an outlet. And it means that they're usually much more successful in life. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the dogs that we find that have the traits we're looking for are either on the unadoptable or even the euthanasia list because they've been at a shelter or rescue for so long because they don't fit the typical adoption criteria. Um, and that's no fault of their own or the organizations that are hoping to place them, but they just are not a great fit in a pet home. And so that's what we try our best to do is to, to cover as much ground as possible to get out there and see which, you know, four-legged friends are available and have the traits we're looking for and give them an opportunity to thrive. Um, that's what it's all about. And they do it on their own. They get themselves there. They have these, you know, these traits innately. And so it really is just on us to help guide them on that journey. We're not forcing them to do anything, you know, we're, we're not asking them to do anything that they would consider crazy because they absolutely love it. And the joy that they have as they're working is just incredible to watch. And so then you mentioned that you are doing work with first responders. So how does that play in? Responders come in quite a ways down the road, actually. Um, they're very important, don't get me wrong. The handlers are absolutely vital to the equation, but the dogs actually train for about nine to 12 months um, from the outset with the Search Dog Foundation. They come to our campus and are evaluated, um, and then they start their training and they learn how to sniff out live human scent. And so they are the ones that respond to disasters and the aftermath of disasters to find folks that may be trapped or, you know, unable to leave their homes. Oftentimes after hurricanes, you know, many people think of Hurricane Katrina or any of those since where people sheltered in place. And unfortunately, you know, rescuers didn't necessarily know where people had stayed. And so the dogs were useful in being able to sniff out where people um, were in their homes and in neighborhoods. And so after about nine to 12 months of training, then they are partnered with their first responder handlers um, who typically go through two intensive weeks of what we call our handler course. It's kind of academy style. They come to our campus and they work very hard, both in the classroom and in the field with the dogs themselves. And they learn as much as they can, but when they're handed the leash at graduation, that's when the real bonding and training really starts. And they go home and they're training every single day. You know, every interaction with the dog is an opportunity to train. And so they are working day in and day out together and really becoming a team. And they'll eventually become certified, whether it's state or federal. Um, and then they are ready to be deployed when the call comes and they'll deploy with their task force. Um, and they're attached to task forces throughout the country. So they are strategically placed uh, throughout the United States and they'll deploy when the call comes in uh, based on where it is, what it is, and, and what resources are needed. When you say first responders, are you referring to mostly firefighters? 
Typically, yes. Typically, our handlers tend to be firefighters, but we also have had law enforcement, we've had civilians, we've had EMS. Uh, it really just depends on who's attached to those task forces. So we jointly interview folks and recruit the handlers, uh, and they go through a rigorous uh, interview process as well. Uh, but yes, it, it typically tends to be firefighters because many of the sponsoring agencies for these task forces are fire departments themselves that already have the urban search and rescue resources to respond to incidents like this. Yeah, so talk a little bit more about those agencies because I just want listeners to understand, I for instance, I'm on a volunteer canine search and rescue team locally, and my team is just a, it's a nonprofit. It's a group of volunteers that are ready and willing and available to help out local law enforcement if they ask us to, and we do go through training, but it's different than what you're talking about. Um, so could you expound a little bit more on how it all works as far as the government and all of that? Absolutely. The handlers that we work with are, are typically their day job, as we say, is being a firefighter or, you know, whether they're in law enforcement or something else. And so they're on a shift, you know, whichever their shift may be. Um, and the dogs are with them 24-7. So the dogs go to the station. Uh, they're with them in their vehicles as they go places and do things. And their training is actually on a volunteer basis uh, up until the moment they're deployed. And then it becomes the responsibility of the deploying agency, whether that's, you know, at a local, regional, state or federal level. Um, but yes, they are they are volunteers up until that point. They're putting in their time and effort. Uh, but everything as far as the, the system and how they're deployed is all through their departments. And so there are, like I said, multiple different types of deployments they can go on. Sometimes they'll respond to a vehicle accident that is, you know, a local deployment through their actual fire department or, or police department. Uh, and everything all the way up to a couple of the task forces we work with are internationally deployable. And so if something happens abroad, they are deployed by USAID and they go and go and help where needed. So it really, it depends on the incident, you know, and the magnitude of it and what kind of help is needed. But yes, that is how they deploy. We do not actually deploy them. We get that question quite a bit. You know, does the Search Dog Foundation deploy them? No, we don't, but we prepare them for anything they may come across. Hopefully they have, you know, some training experience that they can refer back to and kind of have something to fall back on. Everyone emits scent, whether it's from breath or sweat or anything like that, even clothing still has residual scent. And so when our dogs are going to search for someone, they're not tracking or trailing. So they're not taking an article of clothing and then tracking a person. They're actually air scenting. And so they're they're searching for that scent anywhere they may be, whether that's a wide area search, as you described, it could be, you know, a missing child or a missing person um, that has wandered away or gotten lost or something like that. Or it could be in a more urban scenario where it's a rubble pile, a collapsed building, or maybe it's a neighborhood where a hurricane, a flood, or an earthquake leveled it. Um, it just, it depends. They specialize in disaster search, meaning that it's some sort of a natural or man-made disaster where there is rubble and debris, because that takes a lot of footing work and a lot of agility and a lot of core strength for the dogs to do that. And so that is their specialty. But they can absolutely be used for wide area searches where 
they're searching a certain sector and trying to find someone that may have wandered away or something like that. Um, but they're not, like I said, they're not tracking or trailing. They're they're looking for that scent with their nose. And once they catch it, uh, for anyone who has the opportunity to see video of a dog searching, um, you see the hook, you know, the, their nose suddenly hooks around when they catch that scent and they start to work it. And as I mentioned before, these dogs are really, they've they're teaching themselves. We're giving them the opportunity and the resources and trying to to get them to understand how to train, essentially. Uh, but then they are working through search problems themselves. And you see them really getting good at that in the sense that they'll work the perimeter of a, a rubble pile and then they'll work through the middle of it or they'll use the wind to their advantage. And, you know, they're not out there taking, you know, wind directions and, you know, all of that, but they certainly do use nature to their advantage. And so their noses are so powerful. You watch them as a dog starts to get into a scent cone, they will just work it back and forth until they get to that strongest scent source. And that is at the heart of what we teach them and what we train them to do is to find that strongest scent source. So whether someone's in a rubble pile buried however many feet down or sitting in a field perhaps, you know, and has wandered away and gotten lost, um, they are going to find that strongest scent source and alert so that their handler can then mark it and they'll be able to bring in the team to extract the person. And that's that's the other difference is we say search and rescue dogs. The dogs are not necessarily doing the rescuing. They're not pulling that person out or, you know, saving them in that sense, but they certainly are doing the searching piece of that and allowing the humans to then come in and safely get the person out and render medical aid. So it's, it's a really neat process to watch, you know, a dog coming into our campus from a shelter or wherever they may be, and then evolving into this amazing working dog that works alongside these first responders and has every bit of experience and talent, you know, I feel like that the humans have, um, and doing such a great job. It's just, it's incredible. They're great partners, wonderful partners. So what is in their training regimen? So the very first thing that they learn is the bark alert. And, you know, with our dogs at home, oftentimes people don't want their dogs barking because it's going to wake up the baby or it's disturbing a, you know, a conference call or whatever it may be. Um, as humans, we have kind of evolved to expect dogs to be quiet like we would like. Um, however, we don't want that. <laughs> we want them to be barking and we want them to bark when it's important and when they have something important to tell us, which in this case, of course, is that they found a survivor in the aftermath of a disaster. So it all begins with that bark alert and they initially learn that they can bark. As silly as that sounds, we have to go all the way back to basics, the very beginning of reteaching these dogs that it's okay to bark, especially when we're asking you to um, we see a lot of dogs that come in not even knowing what their backgrounds may be. They can't tell us, of course. I would love it if they could. But uh, when they come in, they don't really connect with humans as well. Sometimes they don't make eye contact. Humans have really never given them any reason to, um, it seems. And some may be coming from, from bad situations. And so the very first thing that we teach them is that they can bark. And that kind of begins to build the trust because these dogs have so much drive, so much, so much pent up energy that teaching them that they can release that a little bit is really important to them as a whole. You know, that's, that's them getting to be a dog in a lot of ways. Um, and so you see the trainers kind of, it is teasing them a little bit, but in a playful way with a toy um, and saying, you know, I've got your toy and, and getting them to kind of elicit that bark. 
when they do it, when the dog finally woofs, that is the moment where that connection is made and that trust begins. And you see the dog almost surprise itself sometimes where, oh my gosh, that came out of, out of me. I, I did that. Um, and then you get them to build on that a little bit more because we want a strong bark eventually. And so the trainers then reward the dog for that bark. We want to catch it and capture that moment and say, you're a good dog and start tugging with the dog and interacting and playing. And you see them start to come out of their shells and, you know, they realize, hey, I did a good job. I, I think it's because I barked. You know, they don't quite get it right away, but I think so. And then the trainers start telling them, you're a good dog, such a good dog, you know, and the dogs start internalizing that. They don't know what that means, of course. They don't speak English necessarily, but they understand, you know, the interaction and the tone and all of that. And you see them really just start to become a dog again and a confident dog and realize I am a good dog and I can do good things. And that praise and that positive reinforcement carries throughout their training because that interaction with that toy is all they want in the entire world. So it all begins with that moment. And from there, they just continue to grow. And so then, you know, instead of just getting them to bark, we put a trainer in a tube and we ask the dog to sniff them out in a single barrel, perhaps to start with basics. And when they bark for, for that person, they start to put the human scent together with the toy reward. Then we build from there and add a few more distractions, a few more barrels and make it a little more challenging. And they find the human and bark at the scent for that. Then they get their reward. Eventually we move on to the rubble pile. We move the barrel to the rubble and they just keep adding a little tiny bit of a challenge each step of the way. So we're not overwhelming the dog at all, but they are constantly growing in what they're learning um, and how they're learning it and essentially teaching themselves how to do it. But they are having an absolute blast, you know, each and every step of the way. It is so much fun to watch and they get to have their little party. They get their reward and that interaction at the end of every single search. So it's well worth it to them. They get to tug on that toy with their trainer and be told they're a good dog. And that's, all they ask, which is incredible. That's all they need. about your campus? Our campus is what we call 125 acres of doggy Disneyland. Uh, that is for search dogs, for, for disaster search dogs um, and working dogs because it is 125 acres of just the dream for these dogs that want to climb and run and search and work with their handlers on all the different elements of training that we teach them. Uh, so it, it has, of course, our administrative offices and everything, but no one wants to hear about the human side of it. No one wants to see our offices. The real keys to our campus are the, you know, agility equipment, and we have a direction and control field, and we have what we call Search City, which is a neighborhood prop that looks like it's been hit by a hurricane or an earthquake or tornado um, with a lot of really neat training opportunities hidden within it. Uh, and then we have two different rubble piles. Uh, we also have a train wreck and a collapsed freeway as well. And so all of these things are versatile. And that was the, the way that we built it. We're the only 
facility that was built for disaster search dogs specifically. Um, it was built for dogs, not for humans, believe it or not. Um, we take ourselves into account here and there for the necessities, but it's mainly for the dogs. And it was built with a flexibility in mind. So meaning we have all sorts of different search scenarios that we can present to whether it's a newer search dog in training or a more experienced veteran team that needs more of a challenge. We can you know, scale up or down on the skill levels that are needed. Um, we have so many hides, as we call it, throughout the facility where we can put a quote unquote victim uh, or decoy in where the dogs are able to search and find them. And so we can do everything, like I said, from skill level to time frame. We can do short searches, long searches. Um, and it's really incredible that we're able to then switch things up as well. So our goal is to make sure that every time a team comes back to train with us, there's something different to work on. We don't want them to come back to static training props that never move and never present a new challenge. And so with that in mind, we really were able to complete our founder, Wilma Melville's vision of having this training facility that allows our nation's search teams and really the world's search teams to be able to train on what they need to train on with the help of professional trainers as needed and become better and more deployment ready. Certification is one thing. And, you know, that is kind of, of course, the minimum as, you know, standard certification is with any field. But going above and beyond that and being able to say that a team is truly deployment ready that is the key. You know, at the end of the day, all of the training we do with the dogs before they're partnered, all of the training we do with the teams after they've been partnered and even well into their careers, we want to be sure that when they go out the door to a disaster, you know, I'm comfortable with them searching for my family if it comes to that. And we know that they will do their job and do it well. Um, and the dogs will love every minute of it because to them, it's a big game, you know, and we want to keep it fun. We want to keep them motivated, but it is a job and it is a very serious life or death job and situation. And so we want to be sure that they're absolutely prepared. Um, every time that they go out the door to a deployment, when they come back, we discuss and kind of debrief and think about and listen to any lessons that were learned and see how we can incorporate that into our training props as we continue to evolve and add and shift things around because the world continues to change. And, you know, the scenarios, whether they're disaster or otherwise, continue to change. And we can't think of everything, you know, just sitting around a table. You need to actually experience it and come up with ways to prepare them ahead of time before they step off the bus or the plane um, at a disaster site. So... That's what we're trying to do. And so far, so good. Like I said, it's 125 acres that has just about everything we can think of, but there's always something new we can learn. What does a deployment actually look like? A search day? What are some of the, the less obvious factors that go into it? A deployment can be any number of incidents. And so every single one is different. Uh, we could spend hours probably going through what they may look like. But typically, a team will be called, depending on whether it's from their department or their task force, and they will show up and, and meet with the incident commander, of course, and make sure that they check in and they know what they're doing, who they're working with, and what their resources are, etc., um, they'll typically have a couple of dogs search. So they'll do a primary and a secondary to be sure that they're covering the ground appropriately. If there are any fines, uh, they'll confirm them and make sure that before they commit resources to extracting someone from that area, or at least digging into that area, uh, they want to be sure because it is a lot of time and effort that goes into that. 
And it's not so much that they don't want to spend the energy, it's really time. So our dogs are live find dogs. And so they are searching for survivors. And after a deployment or after disaster, there's a finite amount of time that we have to find survivors in the rubble or debris or wherever it may be. Um, and that window of opportunity with every passing second declines. And so we want to be sure that if a dog alerts, we have full confidence and we know that that is exactly where the strongest scent source is coming from, which in theory should be the closest you know, area to be able to get to that victim. Uh, so the dogs serve a really, really important purpose in terms of kind of setting the stage for what the operation will be. Uh, and of course, it, the opposite is also true. The flip side of that is if the dogs search and do not alert, that is an indicator that there is no one left alive in that area, which on one hand, of course, is is devastating for a family, but maybe also can begin the closure process a little bit. And it also allows the rescuers to know that they don't need to spend time in that area, at least right that moment, to be looking for survivors. They can move on to another area um, you know, I, I always tell the story of the Haiti earthquake, for instance, in 2010, which was a massive earthquake that devastated pretty much an entire city and most of, of the country. Um, and that was just so much ground to cover. It, it was nearly impossible to, to do it all, but um, the teams were able to move fairly quickly. They were able to clear areas. They were able to keep moving so that they could pinpoint where survivors may be because of the mass casualty of it. Um, and so they were able to then have the rescue teams where they were alerting, where the dogs did alert where survivors were. They were able to then have the rescue crews come in and extract those folks while the dogs continued on searching and pinpointing where more survivors may be. And that is exactly how it's set up to work at least in that particular scenario. Um, and so they're able to to continue moving, continue marking, and just try and cover as much ground as possible. Because as we all know, unfortunately, disasters are inevitable, you know, and nature is a force of nature for a reason we use that phrase. And so the magnitude of that is just for humans to be able to do it ourselves. It would take years to turn over every piece of rubble, to look under every piece of debris, or to check every home, you know, in a neighborhood that's hit by a hurricane or earthquake. And the dogs are able to do it more quickly and efficiently than any piece of technology that's out there right now. So I, I never want to say than the, any technology will ever be able to do because I know that technology is quickly, you know, catching up, it feels like. But to this day, the dog's nose knows. And they have such a great, great sense of that. And they really do just such a great job of it. And in addition to that, you know, you asked what a deployment is like. And of course, I immediately tell you what the search part is like, the actual job is like. Uh, there's also downtime. So they work in shifts and they have to have, you know, rest time and downtime. But I will say that these dogs, just by being themselves, are incredible comfort animals. They are not trained therapy dogs. I will say that. But any dog, anyone who has a dog knows that you feel so much better petting your four-legged friend, you know, and hugging a dog. And many times, you know, the handlers will allow the dog to just sit with a first responder or a rescuer that is on the side of a disaster that just needs a moment. And humans don't open up to each other necessarily as easily as we do to a dog. And so many a time, the dogs are comforting a human uh, just by being there and just by sitting with them. And they serve just so many incredible purposes. And what are some of the challenges and hazards they might encounter? 
There are many. So as with any disaster site, um, depending on what it was, there can be gas leaks, you know, electrical, there can be um, the hazmat, hazardous material spillage and things like that. Uh, and really, that's where the handler comes in. So the dogs search independently. Um, they don't search with any vests or collars on. Uh, but the handler is there to be the dog's advocate and to strategically look at the area and see what needs to be searched given the conditions. Um, but then, of course, once the search starts and the dog is off and running, quite literally, um, then the handler needs to be very much aware of what those hazards may be and to mitigate those ahead of time as much as possible. Um, inherently, dogs can get into areas that humans can't um, and cannot do safely necessarily. And it's important for the handler to realize we're not going to send a dog into somewhere that is known to be unsafe, but a dog can fit in a window or a dog can fit, you know, into a smaller space where a human quite physically cannot fit. Um, and so once again, that goes back to the strategy of it and the handler being responsible for kind of using, using the brain to, uh, to do that and set that up and set the dog up for success. Now, that being said, and I realize throughout this, this talk, I keep saying in the flip side of this, but really there are always two sides to this. Um, the other part is for the handler, Yes, they are the dog's advocate. And yes, the handler is responsible for um, all of the planning and the strategy and all of that. However, the handler has to trust the dog. And trusting your dog is one of the biggest lessons and probably the most memorable lesson that new handlers will learn um, because the dog knows knows. And if you question your dog, you're starting to kind of undermine that trust and you're starting to not necessarily uh, feel as confident in your partner's abilities. And so what we have found is we can kind of challenge them on that in training. So I mentioned Search City earlier, it's a neighborhood prop and we have a scenting system, a scent tubing system actually, where we can pump live human scent into a, a building, a house, for instance. And so the victim is actually sitting out in a, it looks like a shed. It's, it's in a room um, and we're essentially pumping their scent into the building. So they're not actually physically sitting there as they have in the past, like way back when you would have the human having to sit in a, you know, a tiny little closet. But with this, we're now able to send the scent in wherever we would like with all of the different outlets we have. So um, an electrical outlet, a toilet, a sink, we are able to then have that scent coming out of places where as humans, we look and see there is no possible way a human being can fit in a toilet or can, you know, fit in an electrical outlet, whatever it may be. And the reason for that is, is not to be mean and be tricking people and not to make up impossible scenarios. It's to teach this lesson of trusting your dog because the dog will alert on the scent. The dog is trained and knows that if that dog alerts on that live human scent at the strongest scent source, they're going to get their reward. In theory, they should get their reward because they are correct. That is exactly what they are, are supposed to do. Now, handlers will stop and kind of balk at it and go, well, there's no way I'm not rewarding my dog. It has to be a false alert. And the trainers, our trainers are able to step in and say, your dog is quite clearly alerting very confidently. You need to trust your dog. And of course, there's a big debrief after that and a lot of conversation, but it allows for that moment of, wow, just because my eyes see it and my brain thinks that that's not a possibility, I have to trust my dog because my dog is actually correct. And so it's a big, big lesson for them to learn. But 
it's so important for the span of their eight to 10 year career together. And in my experience, no handler will ever forget that lesson. And so it allows them to be that much more effective when they go out in the field. And yes, they're keeping their dog safe. Yes, they're being careful about where they're sending their dog and making sure they cover the pile, but they're going to trust their dog going forward. What kind of gear is involved? Uh, the gear really is up to the handler. Um, uh, there is a lot of personal preference involved. <laughs> uh, so typically, though, generally speaking, um, they will have the handler will have a vest on that has any of the gear that they need from leashes to water, sometimes a, a little travel water bowl. Others will drink straight from the water bottle. Um, they also carry a little tube of powder. It's like baby powder. Uh, that allows them to test wind direction and speed. And so they're able to kind of see where the scent might be blowing, uh, if there is any. And of course, if there's no wind, they know that as well, which actually can make their job a lot harder. Um, they also wear typically uh, long sleeve shirts, you know, long pants, steel toed boots, because they're working in a hazardous disaster environment, uh, as well as uh, the helmets that they need at a certain grade that are issued by their task forces. So it's the typical, you know, first responder, especially urban search and rescue first responder gear, but the dogs don't require a ton of extra, uh, hopefully. They have their leash, they have their collar, um, you know, they take their vest with them, but they don't wear any of that while they're searching. So during the actual search, the dogs are, are searching without anything. The handler is carrying the leash and collar to be able to leash them up at the end of the search. Um, but they don't need booties. We get asked that quite a bit unless there are extreme temperatures or other reasons that that would make sense. We actually want them to be able to feel the rubble under their paws because they, they're naturally built to do it. And it actually makes them much more effective that way. So yeah, the, the equipment is not super fancy in, in a lot of ways. Um, if needed, they have things that they're able to use like lifting harnesses, um, and things like that, where they start getting into a little more complicated search scenarios and, and incidents that require that. But as far as what the handlers carry with them, um, it typically is not a lot. Now, if they're going for a longer deployment with their task force, the task forces have a cache where it's a load of supplies that is going to be self-sustaining for the entire task force, the duration of the deployment. And that includes all task force members, including four-legged members. So it will have their food and water as well um, so that everyone is, is taken care of. And it also includes medical supplies and vet supplies and things like that. So it really depends once again on what type of incident it is and how long they'll be gone and what resources they take with them. I'm sure over the years you have heard a lot of stories. Can you think of one that you would like to share? Oh, well, <laughs> well, I have to say I love all of the stories and everyone of course wants to hear the success stories, right? That's what I always get heard. Tell me a story of when, when someone was found. And so I will tell you a story of that, but before I do, I have to say that 
every story that I hear of a dog and handler going out and doing their job and clearing an area and being able to say, there's no one left here. Um, that is just as important, I think, as it is saying, wow, we found someone, you know, and, and celebrating that find, uh, because there is so much clarity and so much just assistance from the dogs in being able to say this area doesn't need to be worked and we can move on. Um, while it can be a very sad situation at the same time, as I described earlier, it means they can be more efficient and cover more ground and potentially get to someone who is able to be saved. And so it's really important, I feel, to keep that perspective and make sure that people recognize that we're trying to be sure that no one gets left behind. And so we need to be able to move on to, to try and save anyone that is able to survive a disaster. Um, that being said, though, uh, while we have had several finds throughout the years, our dogs have, have done phenomenal work and, you know, they've deployed more than 200 times at this point since we started keeping count. And I think it was 1996. Um, these dogs come from situations where they're not obviously the best, you know, oftentimes they're strays. And so one that comes to mind is named Luca. Uh, he is currently partnered with a firefighter handler in upper upstate New York, and he started out life in Northern California and was a stray. He was picked up by the local animal control, and he came to our attention. He was originally named Gator because he is a Malinois, and so I don't know if anyone has heard the term Maligators, but um, it is very true. They are very mouthy, um, but he is a sweetheart. He is a wonderful dog, and he is a working dog at heart, and that became very apparent when our recruiter was evaluating him, uh, but he flew through training, and he just did phenomenally well, um, and it was very, very cool quick that he he made it through and kind of completed that. And so as the time drew near for him to graduate, um, we actually had been put in contact with a, a group of Marines down in San Diego based at Camp Pendleton. And they had asked if we would help them honor one of two, actually several of their fallen um, comrades. And so the one of the people that had been lost in a helicopter crash in Nepal um, after that earthquake in 2015, which actually we had teams deployed to as well, um, one of their nicknames was Luca. And so Gator was renamed Luca in honor of that Marine and his fellow Marines that were lost in that helicopter crash. And so before he ever was even partnered with his handler, he already was carrying on a special legacy. Um, and then came time for graduation. And so the leash was passed to Adam, who is his, his handler now in upstate New York. And actually the, the Marines that were honoring their friends were able to be there for graduation. And so it was a very, very special moment, um, passing the leash, but also passing the legacy of being a life-saving hero on has obviously a lot of meaning to it. Um, and so Adam and, and Luca went home and they continued to train for quite a while. And the time came where they were ready to start deploying. They'd be, been certified and, and they were ready to go. And in upstate New York, I don't know if anyone has visited there. I'm sure quite a few have. There are a lot of heavily wooded areas. There are a lot of open spaces as well. But um, the call came in of two missing children. They were siblings and they were in a wooded area. They'd gone hiking, I think. And so they'd been gone for several hours. It started to pour and rain and it was very cold up there. Uh, and so they started searching. And I remember Adam telling me one time uh, that they got a call from a neighbor that was near the search area. It was a little bit outside of it, I believe. And they'd gotten a call that the kids had 
possibly been seen right near their driveway. And so they headed over there and Adam surveyed the area. And once again, this is the handler's job, right? Is to, to look and decide on the strategy and where you want to search. Uh, Adam took a look and decided he wanted to go one way. Uh, but when he released Luca, Luca took off in the other direction. And so this is where trusting your dog comes in handy. And, and Adam freely admitted it. He, he told me, he said, you know, I had, it flashed in my mind of that, that memory and that experience that we have that I needed to trust my dog. And so he followed Luca um, and they searched for quite a bit. And right as he was getting ready to kind of reset him because it had been quite a while, um, they heard the kids calling out from a pretty deep ravine um, and though Luca didn't actually alert necessarily, he had led them straight to it. And Adam said, you know, if I'd, if I'd let him go just a little bit longer, you know, he would have absolutely probably been down in the ravine with them um, and, and all of that. But he led the, the rescuers directly to these kids. And so they were able to be reunited with their family after a game of tug. You know, the kids were able to tug with Luca and kind of reward him directly, which is just incredible for the dog, but also hopefully for the, the children. But it's that's just one story of many. And of course, that's a success story. But there are so many more, like I said, where the dogs are able to search and tell the humans essentially that there's no one here so we can move on and we can find something else. But it is a wonderful feeling when you see a dog like Luca go from where he was to that and continuing to work. You know, he still has many years of a career ahead of him. And so he and Adam are doing great work alongside their teammates there. And there are many more across the country, dogs just like him that are doing this wonderful work. And then there are that many more that are waiting to be discovered, you know, and be trained to do this kind of work. So we continue to look, we continue to do what we can to, uh, to find these rescued dogs that turn into rescuers. Now you mentioned that you had dogs searching in Nepal and other international for other international disasters. How does it work? Do those countries have their own search teams and then they ask for help through the Red Cross or USAID or how does how are those connections made? It depends on which country, of course, once again, and, and what type of incident. But the call for help can come from that government um, and go through the proper channels here in the United States to, to ask for assistance. There are two of the 28 federal task forces in the United States that are internationally deployable one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. And so when that call comes in, sometimes a country does have its own teams, but they still need more than that, depending on the size of the disaster and how widespread it may be. Um, and so when that happens and teams from all over the world are responding, that's when it's really interesting uh, to hear the debrief afterwards on how they work together and how they brought together their different methods and what they've learned because different areas of the world may do things differently, but at the end of the day, the goal is the same. And so it's really neat to see the teams working side by side and doing essentially the same thing. They just may go about it a little bit differently. So depending on where it is, what it is, uh, and the time frame, it, it really depends on how they, they get called out. But the two federal task forces that are internationally deployable would be the ones that go typically. So the Search Dog Foundation is a nonprofit. How can people help support your organization and also just search dogs in general? So the biggest thing, of course, is spreading the word and just sharing what these amazing dogs do. They can't do it for themselves. And so as humans, that's, I feel, the best thing that we can do is just share that they're here because a lot of folks don't know that these dogs exist, let alone are available as resources when something happens. 
and they see them on the news or something like that. And and typically everything is so chaotic during a disaster that folks may not remember that. So sharing their stories, sharing what they do and how important they are is absolutely imperative. But as far as the Search Dog Foundation goes, we are a nonprofit and we don't accept any government funding. And so we rely solely on individual and charitable foundation donations. And so if anyone would like to go to searchdogfoundation.org, they can learn more about us. They can make a donation and it will go to helping us once again, find these amazing dogs and train them to be rescuers and, and help save lives. So that is wonderful. Anyone who wants more information can find us on social media as well. So we're on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube as well. And you all have a commitment to make sure that every dog that you adopt for the program, if they don't make it through, they have a home to go to. Is that true? Correct. Yes. So any dog that's accepted into our program is part of the SDF family, as we call it. And that is very true because once accepted, we say they will never have to go back to the shelter again. You know, once rescued, they'll never have to be rescued again. And it, even if they don't make it through our program, and it is an intensive program, and if a dog doesn't want to be on the rubble, doesn't like the footing, you know, something moving under its feet or something like that, um, we're not going to force a dog to do something they don't enjoy doing. And so if a dog does not complete it, they go into our lifetime care program. And because they still have the drive, generally speaking, they will go into a career change where maybe they'll do some great detection work. You know, we have dogs doing bed bug detection and diabetes detection and things like that. Um, there are a lot of different disciplines that they can do um, that still allows them to work, still allows them to channel that drive and that energy, uh, but doesn't necessarily involve as much as we're asking of disaster search dogs. And then there are some of, some dogs that get out of the shelter or whatever situation they're in and just kind of decide, I don't really want to work for it. You know, this is nice. I like just being a dog. It's fun. I want to chase the ball forever. But, you know, I don't really want to have to, to get up on that rubble or whatever it may be. Uh, and so sometimes a pet home is a better choice with a bit of training, of course, and preparation. Uh, and so we do place them in pet homes. And right now we have a few dogs available that are looking for homes. They are high energy and active. So we, we often recommend that it be an active home and lifestyle for them. But once again, on our website at searchdogfoundation.org, they're all on there and just waiting to, to meet their forever family. And listeners, if you are interested in learning even more about Search Dog Foundation and their origin story, their founder, Wilma Melville, wrote a book called Hero Dogs with another author, and I am partially through it, and it's a very good book, so check that out. Well, Denise, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all your wisdom and knowledge with us. It was a really fun conversation, and thank you for all the work you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you for helping share our story. It, we can't do it alone. So we appreciate everybody being part of the search. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you enjoyed it, please consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or a number of other platforms. As I mentioned earlier, I'm your host, Shauna T. I'm a professional photographer, and I'm currently working on a photography project about working dogs. If you would like information about this project, please visit herobeside.me and sign up for the newsletter. Again, that's herobeside.me.
www.mindfulpractice.me. Thanks so much. See you next time.